On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told that he, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces for the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in my name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribe were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors of all the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 120 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people its own language, and also the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted courier riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the third on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the people, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jew had, Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among, among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever had a case that you thought was just? You knew that you were in the right. It doesn't matter where, maybe at work, maybe with friends, maybe with family, maybe even a law case. And you wanted the truth to be known. You wanted to be vindicated and validated. So you go and make your case. You stand in the place of, the, of one who is right, and you hope that the 
outcome will be as you desire in your favor. And doing this, standing up for something that you believe in and that is true, it can be hard and it can be scary. What if you won't be believed? What if in the end you won't be heard? But truth is on the line and you must speak up. You must speak out. We see that as the drama of Esther is unfolding, it is not yet at its conclusion. Many things have happened last week. Many things in rapid succession. Secession. Haman is dead. Esther and Mordecai are receiving their reward. But the edict is still in place. Nothing has changed. Even as we see here today, which we'll see is somewhat humorous, uh, the king says the edicts of the king can't be revoked. It's still there. The king, for his part, is not put off by Esther's news that she's a Jew. He promotes Mordecai to vizier over the empire. And it kind of gets us thinking, what if she just would have said, hey, from the very beginning, I'm a Jew and this is my uncle Morde- or my cousin Mordecai. Might all of this have been averted? Might Mordecai have been appointed instead of Haman? We know the events unfolded according to God's plan. But there is something there, I think, to consider. How often are we led into sin because we fear something? How often are we led into sin because we think it will make it better? And in the end, it adds complication. We should always bring forth truth. We should always bring forth that which is just. So now as we come here to chapter 8 in Esther, we're going to see three things. We're going to see Esther's plea. We're going to see the king's response. And we're going to see Mordecai's reward. Esther's plea, the king's response, and Mordecai's reward. Once again, we see Esther coming before the king. And she comes in a much different way than she's ever come at this point. She throws herself at his feet. She bows before him. And she's openly weeping. And this is different than how she's always come. Last time she came, it was with subversion. And, oh, well, I'll tell you, just come to this feast and come to another feast. She's no longer cool. She's no longer calculating. She pleads before him, not for her own life, but for the life of her people. She's coming to the defense of the Jews. And her request has a four-part lead-in. If it pleased the king, if I found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and if she is pleasing in his sight. But these four things are dealing with two things. The king's approval of what she's about to say, but also the king's approval of Esther herself. And as she does this, she says, please, spare the life of my people. Write something, write a letter, write an edict that will revoke what Haman has done. This is the only thing that will satisfy her. And her people's fate rests on the king's response. Before we go any further in Esther today, I want you to consider something. Are we like Esther? What is the picture of Esther doing here? (laughs) Esther is pleading her case for her people that the king would spare them. Do you plead before your king for the people around you? Are you going before him asking 
as an advocate for those that the king would spare them. Those who are under the sentence of death. We know God did not need Esther to save the Jewish people. And we know that God does not require us going before him saying, I'm praying for this person or, or my, my cousin or my family member or anybody. He doesn't require that we go before him and say, please bring salvation to this person. And yet he calls us and requires that we do it because he chooses to use us. Our prayers and our supplications matter. Do we love those around us, those who are lost and dying, who are under the penalty of destruction that has come from the king, and say, please spare these people. Spare this person. Bring to them the salvation that I know. We, like Christ and like Esther, are to become an advocate for those who need Jesus Christ. Are you daily advocating for those who need Jesus. We have to be doing this. We see the response of the king here. And there's a sense where he's really not over that overly enthusiastic about it. He kind of says, hey, uh, so Esther, I, I already gave you Haman's house. And Mordecai, I'm, he's in good position now too. And he, this seems very kind of a half-hearted response, kind of like a, what more do you want? You want more from me? Esther cares for more than just herself, though. Salvation for her and Mordecai isn't enough. She wanted salvation for her people. And the king sees her persistence, and he says, look, I've placed Mordecai in this position. Do whatever you want. Write out, a, write out an edict and send it out in my name. This will come with the authority of the king. And this, at this point, is just kind of hilarious. Because he says, look, do it in the name of the king because the king's edict can't be revoked. And what is he asking to do? Write an irrevocable edict to revoke an irrevocable edict. That's what he's doing, right? It's really kind of hilariously stupid. It's all bureaucracy at this point. Just write a new edict that will counteract the old edict. And so that's what Mordecai does. He writes up an edict. He, he gets the fastest horses he can find, the specially bred horses of the king, and he sends it out to all 127 provinces of the empire. It's much like Haman. And it allowed for retaliation from those who would attack the Jewish people. So here we go. The, the thing is still in place. Still on this day, those who want to attack the Jewish people, they're still allowed to do it. The only problem is, if they do now, the Jewish people are allowed to attack them back. Not only that, they're allowed to kill them, and once they kill them, they're allowed to take all their stuff. So that's how they counteracted it. Okay, well, you can do this, but they can respond. The full weight of the empire now was supporting the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Isn't it interesting how God works? God has worked up to this point. And Mordecai here seems to institute a holy war against his enemies. You can annihilate all of them, even women and children, every last bit of their being. And the question I think we ask is, well, was he right in doing this? Is this merely a personal grudge of Mordecai? 
And I think we have to say, no, it was not. It was directed by God in the days of the Exodus that God would remove these people from under heaven, all the descendants who came from these people. And Mordecai would see this finish. But even as Mordecai wrote, you can pillage these people, they didn't because God said you're not allowed to. If we were to look forward just for a second in chapter 9, verse 10. And ten sons of Haman and the sons of uh, Hamadatha and the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hands on their plunder. Again, in, in verses uh, 15 and 16, they killed all these people, 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were their king's province also gathered to defend their lives, and they got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the fault of King Saul, wasn't it? God said, go and kill them all and don't take the plunder. And what did he do? He took the plunder. He left the king alive so he could sell him for money. The Jews here didn't make that same mistake. They did not touch the plunder. The reality is this. The sentence that Mordecai put forth was just because our God is a just God. But he's also a long-suffering God, isn't he? He delivers those out of destruction and gives them salvation. Out of the flood, he rescued Noah. Out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he rescued Lot. Out of Jericho, he rescued Rahab. But his justice, his holy war, does not only come against the nations. At times, he brought that justice against Israel. Where are they? They're in exile. Why? Because God used a pagan nation to bring holy war against his backslidden people. Holy war was something that took place in a specific time. It was meant for a specific purpose. But now we see this has gone on. In Luke 9, uh, there's a Samaritan village that rejected Jesus' coming. And James and John see it and they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. The lesson being this, we are not in a time where we are to take out uh, penal justice against our neighbor because they reject Jesus. You don't get to go in your neighbor's house because they reject uh, you and your faith and go, well, I kill you now, but I'll leave your stuff. That's not what we're doing. This is not the era that we live in. We live in an era of redemption, in an era of an outpouring of grace. We're to bring the gospel to the nations. We're to defeat the enemy by winning souls. And we're to do this with urgency. But know this. God has not lifted his edict of destruction. He has only hit the pause button. He is coming again. And he will take up holy war again. And it, when that time comes, there is no middle ground. You either stand with God or you stand against him. Those are the only two realities. Holy war is not obsolete. It is just suspended. So what are we to do in the in-between? And I, I will point you back to my former, my first point. For the time being, we are to be pleading with the king on behalf of the people. We don't go to those who won't believe 
or, or we, we, we are to go then with those who don't believe with the message or who don't believe with the message of faith. Christ has brought us into this era of grace and we therefore are to bring that grace to other people. We bring the good news of the gospel. We tell them about the fate of those who fail to turn in faith to the one true king. This is the task we have set before us to plead for the people to bring the gospel to them. How are we doing? Are we bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people? Are we pleading for salvation before the king? It's interesting here, even as we go through this, to see where it ends. Because it ends, chapter 9 here ends, or excuse me, 8, ends with Mordecai's reward. He's going to leave the presence of the king. And he's going to be left with great fortune. He's going to leave clothed in the robes of royalty, blue and white and a great golden crown. He leaves the presence of the king in the splendor of the king. And what a reversal of fates this is. Mordecai, who just a few chapters before was wearing sackcloth and ash on his head, is now clothed in royalty. He's only second to the king. And in response to this, the whole nation is in rejoicing over this. The Jews and everyone else both. There was light and gladness. There was joy and honor. There are those who are actually saying, who are not prior, saying, yes, I'm of the Jewish people. This is a good gig now. If my enemies come against me, I can come back against them. It says the fear of Esther was on them. Esther feared for her life because of the edict. And so she pretended not to be a Jew. They now fear for their life, so they're pretending to be Jews. Oh, how the tables have turned. But there's something I want you to notice here. Rejoicing in this case only makes sense if it's not a random event. Okay, so they had Mordecai. He's in a position of power. Great. But guess what? They still live in an empire where this weirdo king is in charge who's kind of like, eh, whatever. How long will Mordecai be in charge? You, if, you, if you go, okay, we got Mordecai now, but let's look backwards for a second. How long was Haman actually in control? They think there's security and safety, but there really is no security and safety in the empire. So rejoicing only makes sense if it's not a random event. It only makes sense if God is protecting his people. So, of course, their rejoicing is directed at God, right? The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and every providence in every city. Whenever the king's command was edict was reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday, for they praised God for the goodness of what he... No, it doesn't say that. Nowhere here does it say they rejoice and praise God. It just says they rejoiced. Where is the praise to the one who delivered them? And the question for us is this, what do we do when life goes wrong? When things are bad, what are we doing? Do we go before God in our despair? 
What about when life is going well? Do we go before God and say, thank you for the way you're blessing us? Or is it easy for, to forget God when things are going well? We have to know that judgment has been redirected. We who are loyal to God need not fear any edict of destruction. The way out of judgment is to be identified with God's people. Now we see a picture of this in our text, don't we? The people didn't know what they were doing. All they knew was, hey, if you're a Jewish person, you don't have to worry about anything. So let's call ourselves, let's identify ourselves as Jews. And then we don't have to fear any of these edicts now. But that's a pale reflection of the truth that is actually, we find in the New Testament, isn't it? How are you saved? You are part of the people of God. You are in and among the people of God. You are brought into the people of God by Jesus Christ himself. So we have this question, who will deliver us from our edict of death? Who will deliver us from this body of death? Who is the one who will put aside his personal safety for you? Who will risk his dignity, honor, and his life to plead your case before the king? Esther, at this point in, our, in, in chapter 8, has given up all dignity. She has laid herself before the king, and she has said, please deliver my people. And you have one who has given up his dignity and honor and his life to plead your case before the king. These are mine. Forgive them. Allow them to come into your presence. This is none other than Jesus Christ. He left the glory of heaven. He took the form of a servant. He was humiliated all the way to death. This is the reality because we look at the trappings of the season and they're beautiful and we love them. And we see this manger scene and the candles and everything else. But the reality of the incarnation was Jesus Christ taking on flesh to make intercession for you before the king. He humiliated himself, the God of all creation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That is Jesus Christ. From all creation, he had perfect unity with the Father in heaven. And he said, I give up this. I come born in a manger among the filth and the stink for you so that I may plead your case before the king. This is what Christmas is about. This is what we remember. And as we talk even about holy war, holy war never stopped. God brought holy war against his own son for you. He brought him under the curse. He cut him off because of his sin. And so we can read places like Isaiah 53, cut off for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities. God brought holy war against his own son, the holy war that you deserved. But the death of Christ was not the end of the story. There's the resurrection, Christ defeating death, his ascension into heaven, where he is elevated to second to the king, or second to God alone. 
there's not really a hierarchy there, but I'm trying to make the comparison here between Mordecai and the king. Uh, Jesus comes now and, and declares us right. So guess what? Every Sunday becomes a feast day. Every day is a feast day for us because Christ uh, has delivered us. And so we celebrate our reversal of fate just like the Jews here did. We are to be joyful with re- and have like hearts and honor him, knowing that there's a feast set before us. And guess what? There is a feast set before you. This precursor of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so, as I'll tell you soon, and I tell you each and every time we take this, this is a table of rejoicing in what Christ has done for us. And we are rightly and properly to celebrate our eternal that our eternal fortunes have been changed. That there is no for, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a celebration of victory. This is our victory feast. Christ has died for you. He has delivered you out of death into life. Isn't it odd? <laughs> In light of all of this, because we've been going on for a few minutes now about what Christ has done. And, and in our minds and in our hearts, we're probably going, yes, yes, that's true. That's beautiful. And oh, thanks for reminding us of that. But isn't it sad that we're so quickly to forget that truth? That Christ has done this for us. And we forget to come. <laughs> And church and coming before the feast becomes a chore. Oh, it's Sunday again. Does that mean I have to get up? Does that mean I have to go to church again? There's not time for it. It's been a busy week. I'm tired. (laughs) And yet this is where we get to come and celebrate. We have been delivered from the edict of destruction We have been given an edict of life. Esther comes and pleads her case on behalf of the people. You are to come and plead others' cases as well. You must tell them about your king. But know this. Your king does not respond to you unenthusiastically or capitulate to you half-heartedly. He hears you and he responds to you with joy and gladness. We have a great reward. The Jews here, I believe, heard this news and they thought, man, we just won the lottery. What better thing could happen than this? But brothers and sisters, and I use this term just for the sake of illustration. You have also won the lottery. Not that it was by chance, but it was by design. You get to come here today and say, my father is in heaven. I am adopted as a son or daughter of the God most high. That is my identity. You get to now, this very moment, enter into the throne room of grace and speak to God, the God of the universe, directly. 
You have been given a really great gift. Nothing you'll find in this next week under your tree will compare. Nothing, nothing you can give to someone else will compare. It is the greatest gift that can be given. To be called a son and daughter of the God Most High. To understand that when you come before him uh, and you plead your case before him, he is listening to you eagerly. He is giving you all his attention, as it were. He hears every last word of your prayer. He understands your hurt. He understands your pain. He understands what you're going through. He says, come before me. You who are my children, my sheep, who I I desire to tend and care for you. We have to be a people who rejoice in all things, who delight in all things. Because of our God and King. Because we don't have a pagan ruler like this king here. We have a good and just God who loves us, who has given his very life for us and it is with this heart and with this mind that we come before this table some of you may ask why do we at times particularly through advent or through the easter season do this on a regular basis and this will be my answer to you this table is that feast it is that rejoicing And so when we come to this table, it's not something like, oh, we have to do it again. It's, oh, our king delivered us. We get to be reminded of that again. We get to be pointed to our ultimate deliverance in Christ Jesus. And so it becomes a wonderful, beautiful picture of what Christ has done. Particularly at this time of year, and particularly when we choose to celebrate Easter. Christ came to deliver you, to to free you from the bondage and the edict of death and bring you into the edict of life. So let us come and feast and rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Even as we look at Esther and we see this beautiful fallen picture of what Christ has done, would we be reminded of the goodness and the grace and the mercy that we find in Christ Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please stand together now as we sing the first two verses of Go Tell It on the Mountain.
the mountain that Jesus Christ is born.